Welcome to the Don't Overthink This podcast, where we explore and connect ideas without overthinking it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. So Ross Jackson, how's it going? It's going well. I've uh, enjoyed our hiatus, but it's fantastic to be back. How about you? Yeah, it's, it's going well. There's lots of stuff going on, moving and other life events happening. But another key question I have for you is, how do you know? Yes, well, I, I think that for me, I know because I found myself often thinking about how much I'm looking forward to it. So given my time to uh, think about anything, the, the fact that this kept coming up as, hey, I'm really looking forward to this, that's how I know. How do you know? I did not give it nearly as much thought as you have, but from what I gather from one of your posts, you're working at a place and this person would always ask, how's it going? Followed up by the question of how do you know? And that you've kind of, everyone was annoyed at first, but then people learned how to answer that question. So have you learned how to answer that question from that experience? And maybe you could talk more to like what that, what that was like with inside that organization when this person was doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, fortunately I wasn't the first person that that was directed to the, the person was in a group of people and, and asked the question and then followed up with, with how do you know? And, and the person stammered and, and failed and, and really uh, answered the, the question poorly. But I remember thinking, you know, in, in some regard, man, that's kind of a jerk move <laughs> to yeah. put somebody publicly on the spot. So, you know, on, on one side, I was not enamored with it. But on the other, I thought, you know, it, it's good to put focus on the fact that people will say things and, and you know, not that people uh, didn't have the view that they were expressing, but that their their positions are not really well formed or well grounded. So from from that standpoint, I thought it was a, a good question. And I will say every time since then that, that somebody's asked me the question or some question like that, um, it, it doesn't throw me for a loop to have that as the follow-up question that I, I do think it's a fair question to say, you, you've you claimed a position, how do you know that that's the position? How about well, was, you, you read it? Yeah, I was, I was like, boy, I wish, I hope no one asked me that question. Because I feel like the how's it going question most of the time in current American culture is really just a throwaway question of like courtesy and politeness. And that sort of norm as opposed to a genuine caring about how you're doing and how you're feeling. So I, I think most people probably don't reflect much on the answer of like, how's it going? Most people say, I'm okay. Or if something's really horrible, they'll be like, ah, you know, life's tough or something. But and I think generally most people who are asking the question and people who are answering the question don't really give it any reflection. But then that follow-up question really starts to indicate either, hey, this person's a jerk for diving deeper or they maybe they genuinely do care. And so they're trying to probe into a deeper sense of who you are and how things are going for you because maybe they care. Did, did you get a sense of whether this person actually cared or were they just kind of just thought it was well, so a funny question? So it's interesting that that's the interpretation, the, the position that you've staked because it, it, you know, I mean, I think the person cared about as much as anyone ever cares when they ask that question in a group setting to somebody that they don't really know. So my, my guess is, is that the person cared very little about the answer. Um, and, and he wasn't asking the follow-up question for more detail 
because he truly cared and, and wanted more granular insight. It, it really was the requirement for some substantiation for a position that one staked. So the, the person I think was trying to communicate in a very quick and basic way that when you come to brief me, when you come to present information to me, I'm going to expect that you have substantiation for whatever you tell me. So I, I don't think that it reflected that the person cared more and wanted granular insight. I, I think it was more a, um, there, there's a new sheriff in town and this is the coin of the realm, that substantiation is the key. So I'm Which, guessing then the power dynamic was such that the person who asked the question was higher in the hierarchy than the than the people they were asking. I, like, would this person do that to their this, boss? Would they ask that question to their this boss? Person, this person was, I think, the second highest ranking person on, on the base. It was so, a three-star three star general, which is a fairly high ranking person. Yeah. Do you think this person would ask that to their boss? Well, you know, it depends. I mean, at that level, they, they have a, a degree of connection. I mean, they're, they're all within you know, a few years of each other, most of them uh, went to the Air Force Academy. So, so they, they, depending on the relationship, they, they might, you know, there, there is both the, the official um, hierarchy and distinction of position, but, but there's also, there's also a camaraderie that gets developed because so few people are, are at that level. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about a handful of people who have known each other for 30 years. So, you know, there's both the personal and the professional at play. So, so the person might, but it would be idiosyncratic. It still feels to be like, I, I get the dynamic that you highlight and I can see how that is like, hey, I'm sending a message of this is what's important. But I feel like there has to be other ways to do that other than make people just feel lesser. Because I feel like that's what that question does in the very beginning. You know, it's yeah. like, you're going to be the person that gets destroyed first. Uh, good luck with that. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I really did have mixed mixed interpretations of the observation. I mean, I, on one hand, I did think it was kind of a, a jerk move and, and one that um, legitimately could be quite embarrassing for the person that that was called out. And, and especially the, the power dynamics at play are already awkward enough. I mean, one, you know, one is subordinate to the superior. That positional dynamic is already there plus all of the stress of, of meeting somebody new and trying to make a good impression. So, so I did think there was an element of um, negativity with, with the situation, but also ultimately some positive to it, uh, at least from, from my perspective, though, though harder for the person. You, you know, it's, it's more collectively beneficial to all of the people that observed and understood but didn't experience it directly than it is beneficial to the person who had to sort of pay the toll for, for the collective. And you said it did change the culture? It did. For, I mean, for a short period of time, right? I mean, that's, I, I will say, especially in that environment, there's, there's an element of willful obedience to the desired norm that's expressed by by the leader. So it, it was adopted. People became more equipped to answer that specific question, though obviously it, it loses its effect when people know it's coming. So um, eventually 
the the questions just sort of got retired. But then in in terms of the briefing, I would I would say that people were better prepared and and were able and prepared to to go through the material and substantiate positions that they were taking. But you know, then when that person left, a new culture came in in response to that person's preferences or or desires. So. Did the person who was asked that question, did they, was there any like consequences to their career by stumbling through it? No, not, not, not really. I mean, certainly nothing punitive or, or the person was, was viewed in, in any sort of negative light. I mean, I think the peer group, it, it's more like, Hey, thanks for taking that bullet for us. You know, that was a little unfair. I would have, I would have done poorly too. Don't, don't give it any thought. Right. So, I mean, from, from the standpoint of one's peers, uh, most of the peers were certainly appreciative of of the role that the person took and and didn't view it negatively. And and sort of the people in between that person and and the person that was the person asking the question that there was no no negative consequence to it. You think anyone outside has spent more time thinking and talking about this than we just did in the last like five, 10 minutes. <laughs> no, I, I think we, I think we took a 40 second uh, experience and, and talked about it for about 12 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, welcome to Don't Overthink This, where we're, we're doing the opposite at the moment. <laughs> so, so Dr. Heath, I'm, I'm curious, I, I think that you are increasingly observing organizations and organizational dynamics and you know, some of the pros and cons associated with freelance employment, where, where people aren't hired by the, the company on a full-time basis. It, it's more of a definitized contract where, where people, you know, to a lesser degree can come and go as they please, and they can do the agreed upon work for the, the scope and, and money. So I'm, I'm curious, as you're getting more exposure to the model and, and seeing it, um, as compared to the traditional model, what are some pros and cons that you've seen? Yeah, the pros of this is just like some of the things you highlighted, the ability, flexibility, the ability for people to kind of work on their own pace, do their own thing. Yeah, so from that perspective, this like a peer work angle, I think it's very valuable from just, uh, I would imagine the worker perspective, but also honestly from sort of the management perspective, because to do it effectively, you have to actually think about what your like what's the work required how long do you think it should take uh what are the deliverables these are things that you know you see wrapped up in like project management within inside organizations and also this general management but often are very much lacking but when you have a more formal as weird as it is free to get a freelance agreement going you have to have a more formal agreement than what you typically think about for employment but then because you pay that upfront formal costs, you kind of get a freedom on the other side to be like, hey, within this bounds, you can do whatever you want. Where within a, a general employment perspective, it's like you have a general agreement and you're kind of just constantly trying to guess what should be done. Even if things are well scoped out, it's so easy for management to just change it or do something different. And it has no bearing on any sort of financial aspects. Um, they can just change it. Be like, oh, the new metrics this, drop that work, go do this thing over here. Where when you're with a freelance agreement, it's like, hey, you, you, we've, we have a contract for this to happen, so it must be executed in that way, or we have to both mutually agree to change it. It can't just be a one-sided thing. Where if you're an employee, it's like it, it's definitely a one-sided 
thing. There's no option for that. Some of the downside is that the manager actually has to do their job. <laughs> they have to actually manage and they have to actually come up with what is needed and really interpret what the organization wants and needs. So, I mean, it's really just more work for the manager, which I think the downside piece of all this is that I think most people are very bad at management and have no idea what they're doing. But I suspect if you required everyone to have to live in this world, they would start becoming better at it because there's like clear what to do. Like you must do this, you must get better at this as opposed to just like vaguely walking through life at work and just sort of being like, go do this or go do that. Or it the it's odd that a, for, a formal contract results in more freedom than the opposite, that, which you might think would be the case. Um, so that's just kind of my observation so far, um, just kind of observing it and dealing with it Ultimately, I think it's likely the future of where more things are going. This it provides more freedom at the same time of adding structure that is necessary to enable that freedom. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's it's beneficial for work execution and work clarity. You know, the the specificity, which which even within the parameters of the contracted work, it's it's not like the thing is defined in excruciating detail, but it, it is is defined, I think, in a way that is more definitized than what typical in-office in type projects are defined. Um, and, and that clarity makes execution more efficient. I, I, you know, I think there's less ambiguity about um, what's actually required. I mean, I, I've worked in places literally where after a, a meeting where workload was assigned, the people who got assigned the workload got together and, and the first question was, does does anybody have any idea what it is we're supposed to do? And and you know, starting with the fact that you could have three or five people that that all got assigned this thing to do, and among the five, nobody has an idea of what the task really is, other than there's a vague expectation that we have to do something. In the freelance world, I think that there's still a lot of autonomy, as you indicated, as far as the work execution, but but there does tend to be a lot more clarity of, you know, this this is what we want, and and this is the size of the box that we want it in, right? So, I, I in, in a organization, there's lots of inefficiency associated with people gold plating things, and they they write a thirty-page paper when a five-page paper would be sufficient. So the, the contract in the freelance world really puts better parameters of, uh, look, this is going to be a, a 30 slide PowerPoint presentation, or this is going to be a five page paper. And there's a lot more clarity to, to then execute. I think it's so easy just to, to sit in a meeting and be like, do this work, do this work, do this work. And really what it comes down to is there's no thought. I think what the freelance model encourages is a deeper thought. And likely a deeper commitment by both sides to really understand what is being asked and what is going to try to be delivered if one generally cares about the work they're doing on both sides. And I think, you know, again, at least in my experience, this this can be about one page of description, right? There, there's the the purpose, the objective, the the product description, the schedule, and and the amount of resources that the project is worth. And I mean, that at least in in broad strokes could be done on one page but but i think that managers tend to be 
busy and and don't tend to want to define things that granular. Um, so so usually they they're just busy enough to not be able to do that when they're executing in in the sort of interoffice environment. And even with the freelance model, there can be legs where where you know people take time to to develop that. I, I will say, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts. Uh, my observation is that organizations respond better to editing something that is provided as opposed to generating something uh, out of nothing. Yeah, I think my default position most of the time is to create something and then let other people edit, especially within organizational strategy or ideas that extend, say, across departments or something like that, because most people don't seem to desire to or have the time to actually take time to create and put something together, but they're more than happy to critique and, and add feedback. Although I have run into some things in more recently where even pres positioning anything, uh, people feel uncomfortable even replying to that. <laughs> and I think it's an interesting dynamic of the more, I would just say, let's just say liberal, the belief systems are of an organization. I think the, what I've been seeing, at least surface liberal, the, the less likely people want to like critique something. They just kind of like be like, oh, I appreciate that input. But like putting something on top of it feels like you're crushing someone's, you know, ideals or something like that. I, at least that's a feeling I'm starting to see. So there might be some dynamic there that's interesting that like as organizations transition maybe from more of a modern to maybe a more postmodern perspective that they have struggle critiquing and figuring out what to do because it's like anti the whole the whole ideal. So do you think that uh, based on your observations that at least as sort of human tendencies that there's more people that are critical than there are creative? So, you know, that that given given the sort of self-selection people would would gravitate towards critique rather than creating. So there there might be a value and being the one that generates the first document then that people can critique because you're you're going to define 80% of what happens by being the one that that comes up with the initial position and then the political dynamic where perhaps organizational inclinations and and values either impede or don't impede the the willingness to critique i definitely think there's more people who are comfortable critiquing than there are creating and i think we kind of see it play out in society in general like in terms of like art and things like there's not many people who you know are willing to take the risk to be an artist to create something that pushes the boundaries there's plenty of people who are willing to look at that and be like ah, that's so good or that's good or and i think it kind of reflects that if you have kind of too many people creating endlessly it just sort of like creates this like mess of like what does all this mean and so there has to be some balance there, of course. So I think probably that kind of naturally breeds out a certain mix that probably happens eventually, or else the organization just explodes with like endless creativity that no one knows what to do with. And it just goes in like 20 million directions and then it ceases to be an organization and just is some other sort of mess of loosely tied individuals. So you've, uh, you know, culminated with the the publication of, of the book, uh, Thinking Analytically, and you have been writing 20 minutes uh, a day for a year and, and are continuing to do so. Do you, do you think that that practice and that discipline 
has made you more creative than you were a year ago? I believe so. And I think it's, it's sort of this unnatural thing that has occurred that as you start writing, you start making connections and this new thing start happening as opposed to being like sitting down and be like, I'm going to be creative today. But it's, it's sort of a very much a, a process of this like consistency, I think, to find where the creative boundaries are and how to put things together and how to think differently. Cause you start building upon elements of things that are worth exploring and worth thinking about. And inevitably I think that creates more creativity. How about yourself? I agree. I, I think that it, it it certainly has made me more comfortable with starting with a blank slate and and coming up with something. That that doing that day in and day out and and sort of uh, confronting the task as something will be generated within the next twenty minutes. So let's get on with it and generate something. I think that that actually reduces the self-editing and the barrier. I mean, it, the if you're going to do 365 things, there's sort of the implicit acceptance that not all of them are going to be great. But if you are only going to do one thing, there's the, the sort of self-pressure that this must be really good uh, because it's the only thing. So I, I find that doing something more frequently forces the creativity and reduces the stress associated with being creative. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with you. Well, Dr. Jackson, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, it was great chatting with you. Uh, glad that we're back at it. Any final words or ideas? It's always a pleasure, Dr. Heath. Looking forward to talking to you soon. Likewise. Everyone, thanks for joining us. If you like this content, please feel free to join us over at don'toverthinkthis.net where we have multiple posts daily. And we look forward to talking to you in a few weeks.